If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 41 through 47, so please turn there. And as you're turning, let me just also say uh, we're thankful that you would be here, uh, take time on a Sunday uh, to be with us as we worship God together. My name is Nate Aiken. I serve as the Minister of Discipleship here at Open Door. Our lead pastor, Dwayne Milioni, was supposed to this week begin a seven-week sabbatical, his first at Open Door after 23 years serving here. And over the next two months, I was supposed to take the bulk of the preaching. Uh, but more on this in a moment. Next week, Pastor Dwayne will kind of come out of the bullpen and be back in the pulpit for just one week. I don't know if that just tells us he can't rest, he can't sabbatical, or if he doesn't trust me. Uh, but for just one week, Pastor Dwayne will be back with us next week, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. This morning, we're going to begin our summer series, a series we're calling Devotions for a Vibrant Faith. And in this study, what we're going to look at is the devotions of the first church, beginning today with an overview sermon of that church from Acts chapter 2 as we look at the early church's life together. Now, a side note on that, tonight we begin our book study uh, here at Open Door. It'll be from 5 to 6.30, and we're going to be looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, the, uh, what's called Life Together, a look at Christian community. And so there's still time to join us. You can purchase a book in the lobby and then tonight join us at five o'clock. That book will dovetail really well with this series. But this morning from Acts 2, we want to consider the sort of things that healthy churches and their members devote themselves to and what you might call the peculiar way by which God advances his causes in the world. God has chosen His church as His way of advancing the kingdom, and that is peculiar because it means that God has chosen us. God has entrusted His mission in the world to sinners. And yet, brothers and sisters, isn't that a part of the grace of God? Isn't it a testament to the power of God that He can use even us to accomplish His purposes in the world? In light of that today then and in the coming weeks, we're going to examine the five devotions of a vibrant and healthy and multiplying church, which is simply a collective of healthy and vibrant Christians who both individually and collectively devote themselves to the gospel, to the Bible, to prayer, to the church, and to the mission. We say it like this in our discovery class, our membership class. We want to be a gospel people. We want to be Bible people. We want to be prayer people. We want to be church people, and we want to be multiplying people. So that's what we're going to look at over the next couple of months as we turn our attention to this series. But before we dig into the text, I want to make just a couple of, uh, just say a couple of things about the decision that has been handed down by the Supreme Court this week and make an announcement. So next week, as I said, uh, Pastor Dwayne will kind of come out of his sabbatical to lead us. All, both Sunday services will be committed to uh, that Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, and so please make plans to be here. We do know that is a holiday weekend, an appropriate holiday weekend where we celebrate the freedoms that we have as a country. But next week we will look at uh, the Supreme Court's decision, again, Dwayne will preach in light of that, and there'll be other things in the service as well. So even though it's a vacation and holiday weekend, please make plans to be here. Now, just a couple of thoughts, and then I want to take some time on read the text, and then take some time to pray as we consider uh, this momentous moment in our nation's history. The first thing is this. This is a moment of celebration and a moment of rejoicing. And yet we know very clearly this is not the end of abortion. There is still much work to be done. Yet this decision will save lives. We know this. There has been an evil practice among us sanctioned by the highest court in the land. 
over the last 50 years, something like 63 million little boys and little girls, little image bearers, have been killed and they have been labeled medical waste and thrown away. We should rejoice that that should not be normalized among us. And we should be thankful for that. We should rejoice. We should also increase in our love of neighbor, increase in our prayer life, in our advocacy, in our action, and our belief in the power and the grace of the gospel. We should increase in our love of neighbor, both for the born and the unborn, for those with whom we agree and those who, with whom we disagree. Particular, in our case, we should desire not just to, to love those who are unborn, those we're advocating for, but to love fathers and mothers among us who think they have no other option. We should love them in such a way that we can show them there is something much better to choose than an action that will lead either to lifelong guilt or the searing of your own conscience. And so we need to be a people of love. We need to increase in prayer, recognizing that if we really want to make an impact in our country, a bigger impact than even the Supreme Court made this week, we will get on our knees and pray for those mothers, pray for those fathers, pray for the unborn, pray for our leaders among us, because we understand we are praying to the one who can turn the hearts of kings and of men. We also need to pray for other local churches. I was informed before this service that over the evening, over last night, nine churches in our county have been uh, vandalized and been, um, yeah, there's been vandalization even of, of our sister churches. And so we need to pray that those of us who are believers, who are gathering today as local churches will be protected and that there will be peace among us. And also, this is a time for us to increase in our advocacy and our actions. We should be those on the front lines in matters of love and care and action and support for adoption, for foster care, for giving to pregnancy crisis centers, and are also in our civic duties to, to vote. And so we want to be those who are not just doers, uh, not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We want to rejoice, and as we do, we want to do so humbly with love, and we want to do so increasing in prayer and in our actions. So I want to read the text, and this text does give us a glimpse of the gospel's power and the gospel's grace. And then I want to take some time to pray through that and then turn our attention to the text. So let me read, starting in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. And a doctor named Luke writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, certainly there is much to be done, but Father, may we rejoice. Father, we know that you certainly can turn the 
hearts of leaders. Father, we're thankful for what you have done. Father, we should rejoice that this is not seen as a constitutional right. But Father, may we also be vigilant in our prayer and in our love. Father, increased in our love and prayer for the most vulnerable among us. Increased in love and prayer for those who would think they have no other option. Father, in the days ahead, may we be increased in our resolve to love others. To love neighbor as we love ourselves. And Father, as we think on these things, may we remember the power of the gospel and that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers. It seems clear they have been dealt a significant blow. And Father, we should expect they would lash back. Father, may we remember that there are many among us who are blinded by the God of this age. And Father, that should be easy for us to remember. Because such were all of us. Father, in the days ahead, may this only increase our resolve. Father, in the days ahead, may this only increase our reliance upon the Spirit to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And Father, may it increase our trust in the power and grace of the gospel to save and transform sinners. After all, we are gospel people. People who have been shown power, who have been shown grace, who have been shown forgiveness. And Father, we know that love, we know that love will conquer death because it already has. So help us, Father. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we do ask that we would be formed by it. Father, would you show us yourself? Would you show us our sin? And then would you show us our Savior? Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was helping plant Imago Day Church here in Raleigh. It's just down the street. And there were a bunch of members in, in my church who kept telling me, you have to read this book. And the name of the book was The Hunger Games. Now, being a former athlete, I just waited until the movie came out. But here's a little bit of the plot of the movie, and I do apologize in advance for the spoiler alerts in here, but it's been out for over a decade. So if you haven't seen it, you've had time to do that. In this movie, you have this evil government that has power and sway over the country, and the country is broken up into 13 different districts. And one of the ways they oppress the people and continue to show their power and dominance over them is that every year they select two teenagers from each district to come into the capital game for these uh, capital for these gladiator type games for what is called the the Hunger Games, which are televised for the entire country to see. Now, the main character in the movie is someone named Katniss. Just as a side note, it has nothing to do with the sermon. It's played by Jennifer Lawrence. When I was 16 years old, I worked for Jennifer Lawrence's mom at a summer camp. And after one week, I was fired for making fun of the arts and crafts time. <laughs> Jennifer was like eight years old at that time. 
But she's the main character, somebody named Katniss. And during these games, she befriends this girl uh, from another district named Rue. And they form this friendship in order to sort of help each other in an alliance to survive the games. And yet, during all the activity, Rue is struck down. And in that moment, Katniss, to show her love and her respect for Rue, forms this, this burial place. She puts these flowers around her whole body uh, as a sign of love and respect. And then she turns to the camera and she does this little gesture, this little three-finger gesture, which is a sign in Rue's district of, again, love and admiration and respect. And she does this little three-finger salute. And as soon as she does that, in Rue's district, where they're watching this take place, a rebellion arises against the evil government, and yet that evil empire puts it down. And I was so interested in the story after watching the first movie that I bought the second book on audio tape to make sure I didn't have to read that one either. I do promise I can read. And in that book, they begin the story by taking the winners of the Hunger Games to the different districts to kind of show them off. And when Katniss gets to Rue's district, she once again, in front of this throng of people that are there to, to see these winners, she once again does this three-finger salute. And immediately again, there is a rebellion against the evil empire that they eventually put down. But what's interesting to me about that story is that a small thing, like this little salute, is used to spark a rebellion. A seemingly simple thing is a sign to this wicked order of rebellion against them. You know, the church is a lot like that. The church in the New Testament is pictured as a band of rebels, a band of exiles and sojourners who are rebelling and operating and pushing back against an evil world order that is under the sway, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, of the wicked one. Therefore, local churches like Open Door are outposts or colonies or little embassies of the coming kingdom that are rolling back the kingdom of darkness. We see this taking place now as people are converted and at their conversion, they are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. But not only do we see this in our conversion, we see this in our life together as a church, whereby we give the world just a glimpse of what the future will look like. We give the world just a glimpse of what the kingdom of Christ looks like. And what we see in Acts 2 is striking. We signal our rebellion. We push back darkness. We show our allegiance to a coming king. We give evidence of his global reign by being marked by and devoted to some very simple things. And yet in keeping with the irony of how our God works, these simple things like three finger salutes end up turning the world upside down. Our brother Luke will detail for us in the rest of Acts that the kingdom goes forward as these little outposts called churches will send out missionaries to rescue the perishing, to make disciples, to plant healthy churches. And the watching world is so shaken up by it that by the time that Paul and his posse make it to Thessalonica, it is said of them, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Luke wants us to see this morning with eyes of faith. If we will be marked by these devotions and if we will be intentionally involved in the mission of God, we will do our part in turning the world upside down as well. My main idea this morning is this. God uses the devotions of the local church to advance his kingdom in the world. God uses the devotions of the local church to advance his kingdom in the world. God's chosen means to reconcile the world to himself through his son and to accomplish the great commission is the local church. 
This is how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Raleigh and how it's going to go from Raleigh to Istanbul. So this morning, I want to look at this kind of church, and I want to look at Christians who make up that kind of church, and it is those who are committed to these kind of devotions. And the first one is this, we are devoted to the gospel. We see this in verse 41. Here's what Luke writes. So those who received his word, talking about Peter, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In verse 41, Peter's word is the gospel that he has just preached at Pentecost. And we see something vital to establishing churches, and that is the preaching of the gospel creates the first church. The gospel has touched down in power so that thousands are turning from their sin and turning to God. And they are immediately, as they do, they are immediately formed into the first church. This church at Jerusalem, this new embassy, this new outpost, this new family. We will look at this more in a couple of weeks, but we see this here. Gospel proclamation is a necessity both for conversion and for discipleship. Or you might say it another way, gospel proclamation is necessary both for our salvation and our sanctification. That is because the gospel forms the church, the gospel shapes the church, the gospel sustains and sanctifies the church, and then the gospel goes out from that church. Here Peter is proclaiming in Acts 2 the gospel for their salvation, But the rest of the New Testament is Paul and Peter and others giving the gospel to believers for their sanctification so they will grow in Christ's likeness. And that's because the goal of every church, you know, every church has a vision statement, or at least most of them do. But every church's vision statement could sort of be the same. The desire we have is that through the gospel, we will see more and deeper disciples, more who are coming to faith for the first time, and more who are being strongly established and and being firm in the gospel that they have believed. The truth is, we talk about being devoted to the gospel. To be a Christian at all, you have to believe the gospel. But also to be a healthy church or a growing and vibrant Christian, you have to learn how to apply the gospel to your life. Paul tells the church at Corinth that the gospel is of first importance, which begs the question, If I were to grab this mic and start walking row by row and asking, what is the gospel and letting you answer it, could you answer that question? I know that horrifies the introverts in this room. I'm not going to do that. There are several ways we can look at the gospel, and we'll do that more in a couple of weeks. But for now, let's just think on 2 Corinthians 5.21. We might call it gospel gem, where Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled, to be made at peace with God. And here's how it happens. For our sake, he made him, Christ, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, through his substitution, we might become the righteousness of God. So in light of that verse, here's a simple yet hopefully somewhat comprehensive definition for us to consider. It is simply this. The gospel is Christ's substitutionary work on the cross and in his resurrection to save sinners and to sanctify saints. It is his substitutionary work on the cross and in the resurrection to save sinners and then to sanctify saints. Again, we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But one just practical application for this week would be Write out in a paragraph an answer to that question, what is the gospel? And memorize that answer. This matters because the gospel is how God is going to advance his purposes in the world and how he's going to advance his purposes in us. Second devotion, we must be devoted to the Bible. We see that in verse 42. And what we're going to see is verse 42 is kind of a summary verse for what follows. But the first thing it says in the text is this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles 
teaching. It highlights the early church's devotion to the apostles' teaching, which for us is the Bible. Because what the apostles were simply doing was showing how the Old Testament pointed to and was fulfilled in Christ. And then the New Testament is them writing out to the churches. Again, what I said, showing them how Christ fulfilling the Old Testament makes an impact and a difference in their salvation and in their sanctification in their daily life. And the language here indicates this is not a passive thing. No, they are in, intensely devoted, committed to learning. And so it must be with us. Hear me this morning, not all of us in this room are called to go to Bible college. Not all of us in this room are called to go to seminary. But every one of us in this room who claims the name of Christ is called to be a theologian. All of us are called to, to love Him and to know Him by reading and studying and thinking deeply upon His Word. As believers, we simply want to, in our daily lives and in our worldview and in our actions, we simply want to place ourselves under the authority of this Word. We want to be addressed by it. We want to be formed by it. I think that raises the question, what is your authority? What is the sort of thing that forms you, forms your behavior, forms your worldview, forms how you think? Is it the Bible? So often we struggle with our worldview being formed by our peers, by social media, by cable news, by family. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we had our weekend workshop, I talked about this. I don't have time to go into a ton of detail on it, but I just want to say this morning as a word of warning. It's a warning that comes to me, but also to you. If we form our worldview and our opinions and our actions by social media or by cable news and not the Bible, the Bible that's preached week in and week out by your pastors in this church, then we are forming our worldview on wood, hay, and stubble, and it will be burned up. So what is your authority? You know, many of the churches I grew up in, tradition was our authority. We've always done it like this. I think the biggest one for all of us is, so oftentimes, experience is our authority. Now, I grew up, my dad is a minister. I've grown up in the church. And sadly, I've grown up around too many preachers who will preach faithfully and passionately about what the Bible says, maybe about a topic like divorce and remarriage that there are really only two allowances for divorce in the New Testament, and then one of their children will get divorced for something that is not connected to those exceptions, to those allowances. And suddenly, those pastors preaching on divorce and remarriage changes. We so easily, brothers and sisters, can let our experience determine how we interpret this word rather than letting this word interpret our experiences. And I think this is closer to us than we want to think. I think an important question for us this morning is when the Bible begins to rub up against something that we want, who wins? Maybe to ask it another way, when the Bible contradicts something that we think or something that we feel, a desire, an action, is the Bible suddenly silent or redefined? I remember my dad talking to one of these men one time and saying, you know what the Bible says about this. And simply that pastor said to him, I don't read the Bible the way you read it anymore. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are to be our authority. It's where we get our marching order. Because just think about the claim that we are making. We are making the claim that God has written a book. And if God has written a book, then it should shape us, form us. We should saturate our lives with it. Let's devote ourselves to his word, to knowing it, to meditating upon it, to memorizing it. 
That is the sort of thing that will form us into the people that God has called us to be. One practical application this week would be to simply memorize the text we're working through or just read through one of Paul's epistles. May we be saturated and devoted to the Word. Devotion 3, we must be devoted to prayer. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We'll unpack that in a minute. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church was committed to communing with God. And if I'm honest, this is probably the hardest of the five for me. But it really is a matter of belief and unbelief. I mean, think about it this way. I may have shared this when I did another weekend workshop here, but imagine you could talk to anybody, somebody you really admired. You could talk to anybody in the world. Who would it be? I think Jimmy said it would be Taylor Swift for him. For me, it'd be Michael Jordan. If I could talk to anybody in the world, it'd be Michael Jordan. I'm a basketball guy. Michael Jordan's clearly better than LeBron James. But if I could talk to anybody in the world, it'd be Michael Jordan. Now, if he would sit down at dinner with me, do you think I would just talk to him for two or three minutes? Or would I talk to him as long as he would sit there and talk to me? Well, think about that in light of the fact that we have the chance to have unhindered and unlimited access to the very one who created Michael Jordan. Yet so often... I spend just a few minutes in the morning, a few minutes before a meal, a few minutes in the evening speaking to him. Could could it be that I don't really believe there's power in prayer? Could it be that I don't think he really hears me? Could it be so often we don't believe he's really there? If we're going to have a vibrant faith, the sort of faith that these kind of churches that turn the world upside down have. We need God's power, and that comes through prayer. We see here in the text, as a result of prayer, God displays His power through them. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. No wonder Samuel Chadwick would say this. The one concern the devil has is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. May we be a people who are devoted to prayer because, again, think about the claim that we are making. In prayer, we have the immense privilege of addressing God. May we be a people who are devoted to prayer, and not just prayer for our own good or for our own desires, but prayer that is directed toward seeking the will and the glory of the one who has brought us out of darkness into great light. Pray in the car on the way to work. Pray in the car on the way to school. Pray on your way to the service. Pray for the child care workers as you come here. Pray as you walk for exercise. Pray with your family at the table. Pray with your kids as they go to bed. Pray, pray, pray. We have an immense privilege of addressing God. Practical application this week would simply be let's pray every day that we ourselves and the rest of those who make up Open Door will be marked by these five devotions. Devotion four, we must be devoted to the church. And by that, we mean devoted to one another. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The Greek word here for fellowship is koinonia. It indicates a close friendship, a close relationship. And it's very interesting. There is a definite article in front of it. They are not just devoted to fellowship in general. They are devoted to the fellowship, meaning they know who's a part of the church at Jerusalem and they know who is not a part of the church at Jerusalem. This is where we get teachings like church membership from texts like this. 
And we see just as with prayer and just as with the word and the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to this. It was not a passive thing in their care for one another. It was intense. It was active. And the rest of the verses give us what their commitment or their devotion to one another, this devotion of the first church, what it looked like. First, it looked like unity. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. We see here they're together. We see here they have all things in common. The truth is, brothers and sisters, we above all people should be a unified people. We have something so much better unifying us than a favorite sports team. No, we have one Lord. We have a common purpose. We have a common salvation. And I think in our day and age, this seems more important than it's ever been. We must not let divisiveness and division characterize us, come in our midst, because the truth is what Christ has done on our behalf is far too costly, and our mission to the world is far too urgent for us to be divided and to have people among us who are divisive. Not only are they unified, they're marked by radical generosity. Look at verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They're marked by radical care and generosity for one another. And how radical was it? It was so radical that to care for one of their brothers and sisters, they were willing to sell something of value to provide for them. I think that raises the question, to care for someone in this church, would I be willing to give up something of value in order to care for a down and out brother or sister? This kind of radical, what I would call family-type generosity for someone who is not your biological blood is the sort of thing that makes the world take notice. It is the sort of thing that gives the world just a glimpse of what the reign of Christ is like. This is why the Roman emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, would say this. And it seems, a, it seems very appropriate this week given the Supreme Court decision and the work left to be done. But here's what he said. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans not, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And all see that our people lack aid from us. Healthy Christians are radically generous because they know the radical generosity they have been shown in the gospel. And this sort of generosity will be one of the main ways that Christ advances His purposes in the world through missions and church planning and through radical neighbor love. Their lives together also included worship. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. The early church was marked by lives of worship together as they were praising God in a large group at the Temple Mount and in a small group in each other's homes. And now, I don't know about you, especially if you've grown up in the church, but this passage paints a much bit different picture of the church than what I was taught in Vacation Bible School. We teach in Vacation Bible School these little hand gestures that are a bit misleading. It goes something like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. See all the people. Now, what's the problem with that? Like, that's a building. This building could collapse tomorrow and open door will be just fine. Unless we're all in here when it collapses, then that would be a problem. <laughs> and in some ways, steeples are just irrelevant. No, the difference is, and this is the problem with it, the church is not, an, the church is not a building and the church is not an event. The church is a people. 
The church is not something you do, and the church is not something you go to. The church is something that you are. And why does this matter? It matters because this text is showing us that we are on a family, that we are a family on a mission together. So it is vital for us to hold two things in tension as we look at this text. Even though the church is not a building and the church is not an event, there is a unique glory to the gathering of the saints in the church, what we're doing right now. Paul tells the church at Corinth that there is this unique glory here, that an unbeliever would come in your midst, that he would come in and see us worshiping together, would see our corporate witness. And it says this, as he does, the secrets of his heart will be disclosed. He will fall on his face and he will worship God and he will declare, God is truly among you. There is something evangelistic about what we're doing here. But on the other hand, we need to be clear. When we're inviting someone to be a part of this church, we're not simply calling them to a worship service. We're calling them to a family. No wonder sometimes people have the wrong view of heaven. Some of them think of heaven as a never-ending choir practice. That's not heaven. That's hell. Life in heaven is going to be much like it is here, except for there's not going to even be a hint of sin. We will certainly sing together. We will certainly worship Jesus together through song, but we're also going to eat queso together and play together and fellowship together. I'm hoping we're going to ride dolphins and pterodactyls together. And what we do now as the church is simply a glimpse. It's simply a taste of what we will enjoy on that day. And the only way for us to be actually discipled is to live that kind of family life. To actually, as the text says, day by day, be in each other's lives. To sit on each other's couches. To eat each other's foods. To know each other's life. This is what happened in the first church, and it made the world take notice. But not only were they worshiping together, and this is really important for us, their lives were marked by thankfulness. Look what it says in the text again. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. My dad tells a story about how when he was a young minister that he went to eat after a Sunday service and the waiter was miserable because it was Sunday and because the people that are treat her the worst are Christians. Brothers and sisters, we should be thankful above all people. We should be those who are not cantankerous because we know what we have been given and we know where we are headed. It should make us happy people, people of thankfulness. This sort of devotion to one another, this sort of life together led to favor with outsiders. Look what it says. They had favor with all the people. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that everyone turned to Christ. What it does mean is that the watching world looked at them, they respected them, there was an attractiveness to their life together. So one commentator speaking of this passage, and I love this, comparing this to what happens with Jesus at the age of 12, he says this, just like their Lord, this young community of faith was now growing in wisdom and favor and stature with both God and man. A practical application for this week for being devoted to the church would simply be this. Do one act of service for somebody in this congregation. Pray for them, a kind word of encouragement, take them a meal, queso and steak at the Aiken House is great. Care for somebody in this church. Devotion five, final devotion, we must be devoted to the mission. We must be devoted to sharing the gospel. Look at the end of verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. They were committed to sharing what had changed their lives. We see this with Peter's preaching in Acts 2. We see this implicitly here in verse 47. We know from Romans 10, nobody can become a Christian. Nobody can be stirred to the faith without hearing the proclamation of the word itself, without hearing the proclamation of the gospel. And the truth is this morning, as we think about the sharing of the gospel, as we think about being part of the mission, the truth is this morning, we commend what we cherish. We talk about the things that we treasure. We, we talk about the things that we love. I cannot help but talk about my little girl, Ada who's two now. She's doing this really cute thing right now. When she wants you to pick her up, she just walks up to me and says, Daddy, hold you? Yeah, 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 hon, we can work that out. I can hold you. I mean, the truth is, most of us in this room can't help but talk about our favorite Netflix show. I think that begs the question. By what we talk about, by what we post on social media, but what characterizes most of our lives, will people know that we love and treasure Jesus or so many other things? There's good news this morning, brothers and sisters. We don't have to worry about the results. It is the Lord who adds to their number day by day those who are being sent. We just need to be faithful in commending the one we cherish, thinking like missionaries where we live, where we work, places where we hang out through our interests, through our schools, we think like missionaries, we commend the one who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That is what characterized the church in Acts, and I hope is what will characterize us as well. A practical application, work on sharing your testimony in just one minute. Hey, let me tell you about something that's changed my life. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that we will fail when it comes to these devotions. We won't always be devoted to prayer and to saturating our lives with the scriptures and the other things that are mentioned in this text. And that is why we need the work and devotion and the example and the power and the forgiveness of someone else. And we have it. We need the one who was so devoted to the word of God that he would say to the accuser, as he has been fasting for 40 days, he would say to the accuser, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God to the one who was so devoted to prayer that he would go out before daybreak for hours to commune with his Father, to the one who would teach us how to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, to the one who even now intercedes on our behalf with longings too deep for words. We look to the one who was so committed to the mission that he would leave the halls of heaven for earth. He would leave the throne for the tree. He would leave glory for the sake of the unriched. And he would humble for the unreached. He would humble himself by being becoming obedient to the point of death, but not just any death. He would become obedient to the point of the death of a cross. We look to the one who so loved the church, who so loved his brothers and sisters, who so loved the bride that he would set his face like Flint to Jerusalem, where he would drown in his own blood, where hour after hour, the wrath of God do our sins would pour out upon him so that he can save and sanctify his people. He can save and sanctify his bride, his church, our brothers and sisters who sit here with us. We look to Jesus who has made a way for us to be right with God through his blood. And he died under the weight of that. And yet three days later, he walked out on the other side alive. That is who we look to when we fail. And that is who we look to for power. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that there is a king who can certainly transfer you from a place of despair, from a place of sin, 
from a place of guilt and a place of judgment, even if you don't know it. And he can bring you into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. All you have to do to take hold of what God has done for us in Christ is to cry out for mercy, to cry out like that tax collector. Lord, would you just simply have mercy? Mercy upon me, a sinner. And if you will do that, if you will cry that with faith, I promise he will save you, he will receive you, he will bring you into a new family and he will bring you safely home. Christians, what's our response to this text? I think it seems very practical and simple this week. That we would be committed to these things. That we would devote ourselves to these things for the cause of Christ. That we would devote ourselves to these things for our own good. But we would do so also for the good of our brothers and sisters. And as we do, as we do small things like gather in small groups and book studies and sing together. And in a minute, take the Lord's Supper together. May we see with eyes of faith that God is doing through us something cosmic. You know, the church has looked like this throughout the centuries. And yet we need to always be called back to it. And when they have, the world has taken notice. I want to close with this quote from the second century. A man named Aristides is talking to Emperor Hadrian about the early church. And here's what he says. Sounds an awful lot like Acts 2. He says, now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking have found truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth who has no fellow, who has no rival. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. They refuse to worship strange gods. And they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. These next sentences seem appropriate given the week we're in. The widow's needs are not ignored. And they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. You might say it for those that are orphans outside the womb and those who will be aborted inside the womb. They rescue the person from the, who does him violence. Listen to this. He who has gives to him who has not unbegrudgingly and without boasting. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. This one always gets to me if they find poverty in their midst. And they do not have spare food. They fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. Listen to this, sounds like Acts 2. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for His goodness to them. And for their food and drink, they offer thanksgiving. Such, O King, is the commandment given to the Christians. And such is their conduct. What an amazing description of the king's people. May it be said of us. You see, very simple things like a three-finger salute puts the world on notice. And as hopefully this is what characterizes open door, it could be said of us what was said in Acts. Those who have turned the world upside down. 
they've come here also. Let's pray, and then we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Father, we are thankful for the gospel. Father, in so many ways, we do not know why you would put your affections upon us. Nor why you would use us for your purposes in the world. But Father, we are thankful. There's much to consider here, Father. We do pray that you would work among us in a mighty way. Father, I'm done. My prayer is that you would keep working among us. For the sake of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.